Dave referred to me as, my mic on? Dave referred to me as Pastor Tim in the first service, and I'm going, Pastor Tim? <laughs> Please don't, just Tim will do. <laughs> Uh, if you're visiting with us today, uh, really glad you're here. Uh, I, my name is Tim, and I'm actually the worship leader, but our lead pastor, John, is away on vacation, and I have the privilege of preaching and filling the pulpit. Uh, we are in this series called They Say, I Say. It's a, ser- a, a, a wow. summer series of sermons we've been going through uh, over, the, over the summer, looking at some of the sayings of Jesus in specifically in the book of Matthew. And just as we jump back in, I want to share with you uh, one of the gems of my childhood, a, a comic strip called Calvin and Hobbes. And uh, as it appears up behind me in that first, give me a second to read it, in the first frame, Calvin's got a quiz, oh, quizzes, the days of school. And it's explained the first law of motion in your own words. And he looks worried. Of course, being Calvin, he hasn't studied. And then he has an idea. And he begins to write. And we don't know what he's writing. And at the end, he says, I love loopholes. What was the loophole? In your own words. And this is what Jesus is doing in this series. As he recalls the law of the Old Testament and he reframes it, and often he raises, actually every time he raises the bar, but he's poking, he's poking at the Pharisees who have exploited loopholes in the law so that they can appear righteous before God and still satisfy the evil desires of their own hearts. In the passage we get to today, Jesus is really getting, starting to get to the heart of the ethic of his upside-down kingdom. So let's jump right in. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now you have probably, this is probably one of the most cited passages in the Bible, an eye for an eye, a tooth for the tooth, which actually comes from the Old Testament. But then Jesus' response as well, which is better summed up as turn the other cheek or go the extra mile. And man, does it evoke a lot of debate and frustration and anger. Atheists use it, and they say, well, see, that the Bible does contradict itself. See, the Bible justifies revenge in the Old Testament, but then Jesus says, don't take revenge. And we go, shoot, how do we defend that one again? Peter Singer, who's a professor of bioethics down at Princeton University, he's a pretty well-known philosopher, he says, you know, the ethic of turn the other cheek, that just teaches would-be cheaters that cheating pays. That sounds pretty true. Gandhi said of an eye for an eye, he said, you know, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, and Karl Marx, the father of communism, you know, they both looked at this teaching and the sermon on the mount as a whole, and they said, that just produces a society of weaklings. I mean, people who just roll over and get walked all over, the society of doormats. Karl Marx said, no, no, the underclass has to rise up and throw off the shackles of capitalism and Well, if you're turning the other cheek, you can't do that. You've heard the story of the Irishman 
maybe, who received a slap on one cheek and he wanted to follow Jesus' teaching. So he turned the other cheek and received such a hard slap that he fell and knocked him over. Well, he promptly got up and knocked the other guy down. And someone said, why'd you do that for? And he said, well, Jesus said to turn the other cheek, but he didn't say to do what to do afterwards. This passage has been used to talk about pacifism. Are we supposed to do war? Is, it, is, is that allowed? Am I allowed to be a soldier? And I want to suggest to you that this passage is not talking about pacifism or war. It's a personal thing. It's talking about a personal thing, a personal relationship. And so Jesus begins and he says, you have, not, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And he's recalling the Old Testament teaching. And it's this, this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth thing is, is cited in several places in the Old Testament. And we're going to look at the first one, which is in Exodus. Exodus chapter 20, to give you a little context, is where the Ten Commandments are. Exodus chapter 21 is where Moses starts to apply the Ten Commandments. And so in Exodus chapter 21, Moses writes, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm... The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him. And he shall pay as the judges determine. Right? So he's starting to apply the Ten Commandments. It's a legal code. And if two men are fighting and one, of one, one guy knocks the other guy and he runs into a pregnant woman and sends her into labor, but the child's born and the child's okay and the, the mother's okay, okay, no harm done. The guy just has to pay, the guy who hit her has to pay a fine. The husband gets to impose the fine. The judges see that it's applied. Moses continues in verse 23. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for, tri for stripe. You shall pay life for life because God puts a high premium on the value of human life. The highest. The value of a human life is equal to another human life. If you're an economist, right, how do you determine what something is worth? And so this is, a, this is a principle aimed at judges. It's the principle of just retribution, to make sure that justice is done and that revenge is restrained. And Moses continues and he says, and so when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, well, we got to poke the master's eye out. No, that's not what it says. It says you have to let the, the slave go free because of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. So it's not always literally an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Sometimes you pay damages, right? That's a, that's a concept that's familiar to us, right? If I knock into your car, it doesn't mean that you get to take your car and ram it into mine. That might be fun. <laughs> but no. If I ram into your car, I pay you damages so that you can repair your car. And the same was true in Jesus' time, and the same was true in the Old Testament. And so this concept of the eye for an eye is actually the oldest legal principle in the world, or one of the oldest ones. It's found on other, in other nations. There's a, a tablet, a stone tablet, called the Code of Urnamu from Mesopotamia, and it applies this idea of an eye for an eye and a, and a tooth for a tooth. It's the concept of lex talionis, just retribution. 
And God gives this to the people of Israel to make sure that justice is carried out and to make sure that revenge is restrained. Why? Because when you and I are responsible for our own justice, we usually don't just get even, we get more. We, we go a little bit more because emotion gets involved and our own point of view and what I think I deserve and my rights. And so Jesus gives the people of Israel a principle to make sure that justice is done, but not more than what's just. And the judges are there to apply it. What was perhaps different for the Jews is that they would have been a little more involved in the actual carrying out of justice. They didn't have a police force. So if you come and you hurt me, my family gets to go take revenge or carry out justice rather. And the judge needs to oversee it and apply it and make sure that it's done correctly. But the Pharisees, as they were wont to do, had taken this principle in Jesus' time a principle that was meant to be applied to civil conduct, to how we live together in society when legitimate crimes have been committed to see that justice is done and the judges are meant to oversee it. They've taken that idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth from a tooth and taken it out of there and applied it to the sphere, the realm of personal relationships. Do you know what happens when we apply the law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth to personal relationships? Gandhi was right. The world really does end up blind. Too. Right? They had applied it to the realm of personal relationships, which is incidentally the very thing that the law was originally meant to restrain. It was meant to restrain revenge. And the Pharisees had twisted it back so that they could appear righteous before God and still satisfy the lust for revenge of their hearts to get even. And so Jesus says in verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, and remember, he's responding to the Pharisees who have taken that out of where it's supposed to be and put it into personal relationships to use it for revenge. And Jesus says, don't resist the one who is evil. Don't resist the one who is evil. How does that sound to you? Do you like how that sounds? Does that sound like something you want to live by? Anybody awake? Man, I put in... I'm going to get in trouble. I put you guys to sleep faster than John does. <laughs> does that sound like something you want to live by? Do not resist the one who is evil? Me either. We're agreed. This sounds like a terrible idea. Jesus, what were you thinking? But let's talk about what he, what we need to talk for a second about what he really is saying here because, right, this is why this passage gets misunderstood because it's easily misunderstood. So what is Jesus saying when he says, do not resist the one who is saying? And it, let me be really clear. This is not a call or a command to stay in an abusive relationship. If you are in an abusive relationship, you need to talk to someone. You need to seek help. That is not what Jesus intended for you. This isn't a call to non-resistance either. Now, I know that's confusing because Jesus says, don't resist the one who is evil. So how can you go and say this is not a call to non-resistance? Well, we know that it can't mean that it's a call to non-resistance because both Jesus and Paul resisted. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul says that he was in a dispute with another apostle, Peter, over what it meant to be a Christian. And there was a bunch of Jewish Christians who had said, well, you need Jesus, but you need to be circumcised too. See, circumcision was a sign that, G that God had given to the Jews in the Old Testament so that they were 
different. They wanted, he wanted them to be different than all of the other nations, and so he gave them an outward sign. And the Jews said, well, you need Jesus, but you need circumcision too. And all the Gentiles who came in who weren't circumcised were going, really, we do? And Peter was siding with the Jews. And Paul comes in and says, no, you're wrong. Peter, they don't need to be circumcised. Stop twisting the gospel. He resisted him out of love for the Gentiles and the Jews and for Peter himself, for the purity of the church, he resisted. But Jesus resisted as well. In John chapter 18, he's, he appears before the high priest on his way to be crucified. And the high priest starts questioning him and says, what have you been teaching and what are your disciples doing? And Jesus looks at him and goes, why are you asking me these things? I, it's not like I taught them in secret. I taught them at the temple every day. You were there. And the high priest's guard come over, comes over and, and smacks Jesus on the face. And Jesus doesn't turn the other cheek. He looks at the guard straight in the eye and says, look, if I said something wrong, fair enough. But if what I said is right, why are you hitting me? That doesn't sound like do not resist the one who is evil. And maybe more importantly, in John chapter 2 and then again in Mark chapter 11, Jesus makes a whip and goes in and clears the temple because they'd made a place of prayer into a marketplace. Now, that's physical aggression. I mean, you can just imagine Jesus running around with his bullwhip. So this can't mean just simple call to non-resistance because Jesus himself resisted. And I don't think this is a call to anarchy or to abandon justice either. The Apostle Paul frames this for us in his letter to the, the Romans in the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13. He says, beloved, speaking to Christians, Jesus followers, he says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He says, look, God is going to do ultimate justice. At the end of time, he's going to come back and he's going to do justice. He's going to set everything right. He's going to wage war and conquer evil for good. He's going to set up on his throne. And he's going to judge the living and the dead. He's going to do justice. And so as a Christ follower, you don't need to do justice to seek your own vengeance. You can leave that to him. And he says, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. And here's the principle. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then it's almost like he senses our question. Okay, yeah, but God, okay, fair enough. God's going to do justice ultimately at the end of time. And got that. But what about now? And he keeps going in Romans chapter 13. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority, no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he, the government, is God's servant for your, gore, for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Paul says, yeah, in the now there is a way that God has seen to do justice here and now, and that's through the government, which gets its authority from God. And we go, I'm not sure I like that very much. I mean, governments, eh, they do a pretty, they do a lot. They don't, sometimes they really mess up, let's be honest. 
Can God really do justice through the government? And yeah, sometimes he does, and sometimes he does it despite the government, but Paul says he does. He's involved in this world, and he actually works through human means. It shouldn't be surprising to us that if he works, we expect him to work through us here in this place, that he also works through other humans in government. And Sometimes it's messy. But sandwiched in between those two things, God does justice here and now in this time, and he's going to do justice at the end of the time, at the end of time. Paul has that principle, do not be overcome with evil. And that's what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 4. Do not resist, sorry, chapter 5, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not overcome evil with evil. When someone does evil to you, don't resist them back with more evil. Rather, overcome evil with good. And the reality is that when we overcome evil with evil, when someone does evil to us and we resist back at them with more evil, guess what? That multiplies evil. And we end up in this tit-for-tat, back-and-forth game of revenge one-upmanship. I stole your cat, so you stole my cat plus my mouse back. So I stole your dog, and well, it's not fair. So you steal my dog and a couple more mice. And then we die, and our children inherit the feud, and so they're, all of a sudden they're stealing dogs and cats and mice, and no one remembers why. Okay, that's ridiculous. But, right, you understand the principle of back and forth, tit for tat, revenge, getting even. Human relationships go out the window. And if you remember... Jesus tells us to invest in the kingdom of heaven, in an eternal kingdom. Guess what? Guess what's eternal here? Souls. Souls aren't going away. Your dignity, your honor, your stuff, all that's going to go away. And so Jesus says, don't resist the one who is evil, but overcome evil with good. And then he digs into four really juicy illustrations that we all love. He says, don't resist the one who is evil, but and if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Who here has ever been slapped on the face? Anyone? Little audience participation. Anyone ever been slapped? How did that feel? It felt good, right? Okay, just, just checking. I mean, my two-year-old daughter, who's the cutest thing on the face of the planet, comes up and playfully smacks me on the back of the head, and it's like, <laughs> I'm like, where did that come from? That's my two-year-old daughter, right? We don't like getting smacked on the face. In the Middle East, in Jesus' culture, a smack to the face was the equivalent of the worst verbal insult you could level at someone in our culture today. I mean, the relationship is broken, it's dead, it's buried. It's not a physical thing, it's also, it's an ethical thing, it's an insult to the person. And Jesus says, I know what your gut reaction is in this case, but instead of slapping him back, of getting revenge, of getting even, look them in the eye and turn the other cheek. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. In Jesus' day, you would, when you got dressed, you'd put on your loincloth, and then you'd put on your tunic, and then you'd put on your cloak. If you were wealthy, you had spare of, of those. If you didn't, well, you only had the one, and your cloak was actually the thing you slept in at night. And so when Jesus says to his disciples and to all the people standing around him, most of them who don't have a second tunic and cloak, he says, if someone sues you, maybe rightfully, maybe not rightfully, for your tunic, offer them your cloak as well, and their minds are going, hang on, I'm going to be walking around naked. 
It's almost humorous. Except for that clothes are really important. And so Jesus says, I know what your gut reaction is to defend yourself. Maybe you're going to counter sue. If you lose, you're going to go away and plot your revenge. He says, I know what your gut reaction is, but don't do it. Turn the other cheek. Offer your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. The Romans were the occupying force in Jesus' time. A Roman soldier had the legal right to look at you and say, Dave, help me carry my stuff for a mile. He had, he had the legal right to conscript you to help him for up to a mile, a thousand footsteps is a Roman mile. Dave, come help me carry my, my bag for me or carry the mail or go take the mail over to this town. He could boss you around. He had to obey him. It was legal. And if you're a zealot, that's the Jewish sect that was actively resisting against the Roman authorities. I mean, like, actual, like, fighting. If a Roman soldier comes up to you, you pull out your sword. And Jesus says, if he asks you to, to go one mile, offer to go a second. These illustrations are meant to be provocative because if you're like me, you read these and you go, yeah, I really don't want to do that. Someone forces me to do, I mean, this is New Jersey for Pete's sake. We push back. <laughs> I learned that when I got here. And if you like somebody, okay, here's the thing. Apparently in New Jersey, if you like someone, you bust their chops. <laughs> now I'll happily bust your chops as well. But, right, this is, we read this and go, uh-uh, no way, man. I'm not going the extra mile. I'm not turning the other cheek. These illustrations are meant to provoke us because Jesus is trying to prove the point that we're not good at this. It reveals our own brokenness, our inability to, to live in his kingdom as we ought, as he's calling us to. We are so used to defending our own kingdoms on focusing on our activism and our issues and the causes we defend that we end up reducing one another to something far less than human. They're a title, a position, an object, a role, the enemy, the other side, a piece of meat. Whenever we react to the situation, we inevitably dehumanize one another. And that is the core of this, of what Jesus is getting at. He's calling us to not react to the situation, but to respond to the person. Respond to the person. Don't react to the slap. Don't react to the lawsuit. Don't react to the conscripted force. I'm not really sure what the equivalent of that one. Someone is trying to force you to do something or manipulate it. Don't react to their action. Respond to the person. Respond to the person. Jesus goes on and he has a fourth example. He says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This example is a little different than the other ones because there's no oppression involved. There's no, there's no oppression that is inviting us to retaliate and to strike back. But it actually comes from the same place as revenge because the desire for revenge is about getting even. It's about what, getting what's mine, my kingdom, my stuff. And when someone says, Please, sir, can I, have, can I have a few coins? When your friend says, I'm in financial trouble, I need, to, I need a loan, I need some money. And we say, 
uh, he's probably going to go spend it on beer. My buddy's never going to pay me back. I'm sorry, I can't. What we're really saying is there's nothing in it for me. There's nothing in it for me. I'm interested in getting stuff for me. It comes from the same place as revenge. It's about getting what's mine, building my kingdom. And so when we react to the situation instead of responding to the person, it results in revenge, it results results in greed, it results in broken relationships, in dehumanization. And so Jesus calls us to react differently. And responding to the person requires a different gut reaction. It requires compassion. Jesus illustrates for us what compassion looks like in Matthew chapter 9. He says, and Jesus, Matthew writes, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The Greek word for compassion comes from the word for bowels. Because in Greek thought, the bowels, the gut, was the seat of thought and emotion, right? We have a different concept of that, right? For us, it's the heart. Can you imagine if Hallmark wrote a card that said, I love you with all my bowels? <laughs> right? When, when, if you're a guy, you call a girl and you, you ask her on a date and she accepts and he puts her arm around her, they don't feel butterflies in their heart. If you do, please call 911. You feel it in your gut. And so that's why for the Greeks, the emotion was felt in the gut. That's why, that, that's why compassion is bowel. It's because you feel it there. And Jesus looks at the crowd and he sees them and he has compassion on them. And it says that he saw the crowd that was helpless and oppressed. They're harassed. This is the language of physical assault. It's like walking down a street in the city and you hear a noise down an alleyway and you look and your eyes are filled with this scene and you see a young woman being physically assaulted by a man. And you can't do nothing. You have to, you see the value, there's life at risk here. You have to act. There's an urgency to it. It's not pity, pity's different. Pity devalues the other person. Oh, you poor soul being assaulted over there. No, right? That should offend us. There's a life at risk. There's an urgency. And I, compassion places me on the same plane. I see the value of the person. I see the need. And Jesus looks at the crowd and he sees the urgency. He sees their value. He sees their need. And he can't not do anything. And so he walks around preaching the gospel of the kingdom because they need a savior and he's healing them because they have physical needs. He had compassion on them. But compassion is hard because compassion calls us to a life of sacrifice where we sacrifice our pride, our dignity, our rights, how much we fight for our rights today? I mean, we have an entire section of our Constitution defending, protecting our basic rights, and they're good rights. Good governments protect those rights. But Jesus says, as a citizen of my kingdom, you can choose to give those up. 
because I've got everything that really matters. You can kill the body, but you can't kill the soul. And I have your soul, your mind. So you could choose to give those up, but man, is that hard? Because we end up looking naive, we look foolish. It might mean that we allow ourselves to be taken advantage of. Does anyone in here enjoy being considered stupid? I mean, do you know how much effort we put into trying to not let other people think that we are foolish and naive? Maintaining appearances? Right? You don't, wanna, you don't want other people to assume, to think that you, are, you don't know what you're doing. Again, this is New Jersey. <laughs> it's human. But Jesus calls us to sacrifice those things because that's what he did for us. That's what he did for us. He was reviled. He was spat on. He was crowned with a crown of thorns, beaten, insulted. And we, as part of the human race, our race did that to him. And then we crucified him, nailed him to a cross. And thank heavens... He didn't strike back. Thank heavens he turned the other cheek and he gave us the clothes off his back and he went the extra mile because we'd be in real trouble if he didn't. And that's grace. He gave us what we didn't deserve. He lived, he fulfilled. That's what Matthew says at the beginning of, his, of Jesus' sermon. Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law. And I think there are moments, of course, where this is really hard for us. And I think it ought to be hard for us because justice still needs to be, to be done. Jesus doesn't do away with the law of just retribution. He's simply saying it needs to remain over here. But your personal relationships have to be governed by compassion. And that's hard because there are times life is complex. And you need to pursue justice in a given situation and there's lots of emotions flying around and maybe someone has d committed a crime and so you still have to call the police. And Jesus, and Jesus says, but don't lose sight of the person and give them compassion. Even as you're looking at the murderer, thief, whatever, in the eye, across the aisle in court, you're still responding to the person. And with this, Jesus raises the bar, as he always does with these. He raises the bar, and the temptation for us, once again, is to do what the Pharisees did and bring it back down where it's achievable, but the law was never meant to be achievable. The law was meant to drive us to Christ, that we see our need and we go, Lord, I can't do this, I need you, because he can do it. He did do it. And what he's calling us to in raising the bar is to choose a different gut reaction. Our gut reaction is often revenge to defend our own kingdom, to get back, to get even. He's saying, no, as a follower, as my follower, as a citizen of the kingdom, choose a different one. Ignore the revenge reaction and choose a different gut reaction. How do you choose a different gut reaction? Because the reality is that the law is only able to restrain evil. The law can only restrain evil. It can make sure that justice is done. It can, it can 
restrain revenge, but it can't change the heart of man. It can't produce goodness and life and righteousness in you. Only Christ in you can do that. And now we're getting to the heart of Jesus' upside-down kingdom. Only Christ in you can produce these things. Maybe you listen to this, maybe you've been with us over the summer, and we keep coming back to this idea of you can't get there on your own. And man, this is calling me to, man, this is a hard thing to live out. I mean, if I'm really going to do this, Jesus better know what he's talking about. He really better be in charge of ultimate justice. He really better be able to work through the government and achieve some justice here and now. He really better mean that if I seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, that he's going to take care of my basic rights. He really better mean that there is an eternal reward awaiting in heaven if I invest in that. Because if there's not, I'm in big trouble. This really requires a lot of trust. Yeah, it does. It does. And in a sense, that's the point of all of this. Are you willing to trust him in radical ways, which might end up being radically countercultural, but man, that's real life. That's true freedom. But maybe you're, you're listening to this and you're going, man, but I've built a really good kingdom. I mean, I've fought tooth and nail for all this stuff for everything I've built up in my life. If I start living that way, it might all disappear. Yeah. But true reality is that we are actually enslaved to our stuff because we're so busy defending our rights and fighting for our own kingdom that we can't let go of it. We're enslaved to it. And Jesus says, if you die to yourself, if you die to your kingdom and let it die, I will give you true life. Do you want true life this morning? Maybe you listen to this and you're going, okay, I trust, yeah, I really want to trust Jesus. I'm trying to, to die. Dying's painful, dying's hard. That's why Jesus used the word dying. but I keep trying and I keep feeling, I feel like I come up short. I don't have enough gas in the tank to get there. And this is something I've been working through in my own life of just realizing how this works is that Jesus has given you his spirit in you, the spirit of Jesus. That's when we say Christ in you. It means when you became a follower of Jesus, you have his Holy Spirit in you, not just as a kind of a down payment that he's gonna come back for you, but as the power to live now. Eternity starts now. It doesn't start when you die. It starts now. And when you die to yourself, the way it always is in God's kingdom, it's the, it's the, it's the kingdom of the upside down. When something dies, Jesus brings it back to life. And so maybe you need a new portion of his spirit in you. You have it, but you need to use it. Paul says to Timothy in first, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, he says, you have been given not a spirit of fear, not a spirit of needing to defend your stuff and your kingdom, seeking revenge, but a spirit of love and power and self-control. Self-control to turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give them the shirt off your back. 
He's calling you. He's calling you. Will you respond? Where do you need this morning? Think about your life for two seconds here. Where's the situation that you've been reacting to and he's calling you to respond to the person instead of the situation? Maybe it's a little more out there. Maybe it's, it's the politics that get you riled up. Maybe it's the rights movements. There's a lot of those. Maybe it's, maybe it's something stupid. It's the news presenter on Fox or MSNBC or CNN, whatever, whichever one you watch and it gets you angry. It's like, stop watching it. But maybe you need to look at that person and go, that's not just the news presenter. That's a person made in God's image. Maybe it's a little closer to home. It's your wife when she criticizes you. It's your husband when he ignores you or forgets your anniversary. Your child rebels against you. Your boss dumps on you. Your colleague steals your promotion. A client doesn't pay. An employee shows up late again. A friend publicly humiliates you. A difficult family member is around And they're not an employee, a boss, a spouse, a child. It's not, it's their people. You're responding to the person. And sometimes this is really simple as the band comes up. This is really simple. It, 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 practically, it means you start to, to try and give the benefit of the doubt and not assume the worst. Sometimes you give the benefit of the doubt even when you know that the intent was wrong. You give them the benefit of the doubt anyway. You seek to bless instead of curse, even when you've been cursed. That's Paul's language in Romans 12. Bless them. How can I do them good? And that might be material, but it might not be material. It might be relational, right? You know that the broken people hurt people or hurt people hurt people? That's the one. Responding with evil for evil isn't going to change their hearts. It's not going to save their souls. But sometimes our reacting to situations is less active and more passive. I think a lot of life for us happens that way. And so I started asking myself, what would it look like if all of life, because that was what Jesus was talking about, those, those illustrations are not just about oppressive times, but any situation where we might be tempted to see the situation instead of the person. And so what would it look like if we went out to our cars today and you see someone else, our church is pretty big, there's a lot of people you might not know, and you see them, and instead of just, oh, that's some other person who goes to Menham Hills, that's a brother or sister in Christ, I wonder what their name is. And then you drive out on a 24 and you turn left, and some guy cuts you off. And instead of flying off the handle, you go, I wonder if he had a bad day. Lord, did he have a bad day? Lord, I hope he finds you if he doesn't know you. And you keep, you keep driving, and you pull into the delta down the road. And there's a young guy there who pour, pour, pours your gas. I think he's Indian or Pakistani. doesn't speak English all that well. He's on the phone a lot, I assume, with his family. And what if you looked at him and instead of just going, fill her up, you said, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Have a great day. See you next week. 
And you pull out of the Delta and you drive down to ShopRite and you pull into ShopRite and whoo, there's a lot of people there. Everybody's doing their after Sunday shopping for the week. So it's eyes down, what's my shopping list, get done, make eye contact. But what if you lifted up your head and you went, man, this is the 92,000. I'm not asking you to go talk to everybody. I'm just saying look at them differently. See them as Jesus sees them. That's the 92,000. They have joys and sorrows and history and hurts and needs. And they're desperate for a Savior just like you and I. And you go in and you go to your shopping and you get to the cash register and there's the young teenager there who always takes too long. And instead of standing there being annoyed, you go, I'll fill the bag. Don't worry, I got it. I'll fill my own bags. Thanks. Have a great day. Make eye contact. What about the guy at the toll booth? You drive past. If you, well, if you drive through the toll booth, most of you have easy pass. <laughs> what about the guy who mows, his lo- mows your lawn? Do you know his name? Or is that beneath you? See the person, not the situation. That's what Jesus is calling us to. This is not about war or pacifism or can we do violence to others. This is about seeing the person. Will you choose to have compassion on them, even if it's just, hey, what's your name? Everyone needs compassion, the kindness of a savior. Jesus died to give you and show you compassion. It's the right of the kingdom. It has different rights. Will you exercise that right? to choose a different gut reaction? Would you give your life to follow everything you believe in? And we're gonna sing these words, will you surrender? Mm-hmm.